Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Taisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Thanks for listening today. I really appreciate your company. Uh, I've got an interesting episode today. I wanted to understand some of the ways that work was having an impact on our psyche. And I was just uh, intrigued. I came across a psychotherapist called Naomi Shrigai. And she is Californian, but she practices in London. She spent about 30 years practicing here. And over the course of time, she's found herself becoming a columnist for organisations like this. The Financial Times, The Guardian, she's been on Radio 4, asking increasingly more and more questions about people's experience with work. So I was... I was just intrigued to ask her some of the the things that she might come across, how mental health and maybe some uh, mental health conditions might impact our working environment. It was a, a sort of flight of curiosity that Naomi was brilliantly able to really talk me through. So she's had 30 years as a psychiatrist, but she talks about things like imposter syndrome, And in fact, she talks about one of the advantages you might find if you suffer from imposter syndrome or some of the other people that we encounter in the office, people pleasers, how to tell if your boss is a narcissist. It's a brilliant discussion. If you are interested in Naomi's work, she's just got a brand new book published, which is called The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life. If you've got a curiosity for psychology, or maybe if you just wanted to know the difference between a psychologist, a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist, then Naomi's got the answers for you. Here's my discussion with Naomi Shrigai. Naomi, thank you so much for for joining me. I'm so well, look, I'm so curious and and intrigued to have this conversation. So so thank you for joining me. I wonder if you could kick off by just introducing who you are and explaining a little bit about yourself. Okay. Yes. Um, well, I'm a psychotherapist. I mean, I've been a psychotherapist in practice for over 30 years, so we go back quite a long way. I mean, I, could, I began my work in a some 30 years ago in a community mental health team, and it was quite interesting at the time because I was trained to work with families where someone in the family had a mental illness. So that equipped me very well for beginning to think about understanding people's problems and context of their relationships and of their lives. So that was sort of the beginning. And then I subsequently trained at the Tavistock in London. 
And since I've been primarily in private practice, initially seeing couples, families, individuals, but over the past 15 years or more, more predominantly, I'm seeing people for work-related problems. So they're coming to me for work issues, and oftentimes they're the sorts of problems they can't quite make sense of, and so they're prepared to dig a, dip, dig a bit more deeply. And part of this began, this might be interesting, because a lot of this began, as I say, some 15 years ago, quite a while ago, and I noticed in my practice that at the time I had quite a lot of men, and they were in their 30s predominantly, maybe early 40s, and it was at a time in their life when they were at the peak of their career, so there was a lot of work pressure going on. And around the same time, they're often struggling with a young family. It's when they're having young children. And because they have a growing family, they also have the added pressure of buying a bigger house or having extensions or all these issues kind of coincide at the same time in one's life. And the pressure for many of these people is quite immense. So it prompted me to pitch an article for the Financial Times on fathers struggling to have it all and how young, how fathers uh, struggle to find a balance in their lives. And at the time, the Financial Times wasn't really doing much about people's emotional lives. So it was quite a new feature for the paper. And I went on to write pieces about people's fear of delegating, dealing with narcissistic bosses, having difficult conversations. 10 years ago or so, these were quite issues that weren't really discussed very often. So it really touched a nerve with readers. And the paper invited me to continue contributing features. And I have been ever since. And that has become the focus of my work, trying to write and teach and talk about these themes and also helping people address these problems in the workplace. Tell me this, before we delve in, for for someone who's an amateur, what's the difference between a psych? a psychotherapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. We don't hear psychiatrists very much these days. What are all yes. the differences between those things? Oh, gosh, it's such a good question. People don't know, and I wish they would ask these questions more often. So very simply put, psychiatrists deal primarily with mental illness. So these are the people who are equipped to prescribe medication, for example, if that's predominantly the treatment of choice. Um, psychotherapists are oftentimes interested in people's um, early lives, their unconscious motivations. Um, psychologists and psychotherapists are perhaps more closely aligned. If I could say things speak a bit generally, I would say that psychologists are more interested in behaviors and offering techniques. These might be the people who, for example, prescribe cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. So they're much more interested in perhaps behaviors. Psychotherapists, psychoanalysts might be more interested in the unconscious. So they might be more interested in people's unconscious motivations, their early lives. And they're also interested in just examining in more depth. So they might be, all might be focusing on a specific problem, but seeing it from a different perspective so you found yourself i guess um really interested in this this application of these knowledges uh, psychology and 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 psychotherapy in the workplace um tell me this you know when when Mm. you sort of delved into it do you see very different patterns over time or, or do we see the same issues coming up time and time again 
Well, they're very unique to people. So I think, you know, you know, oftentimes people think there's a prescriptive approach that most people can adapt in the workplace. And many business books and self-help books write along those lines as if one style or one approach uh, or one theme can help most people. But people are so unique. They're so unique in their upbringing. They're so unique in their psychology and how they respond and who they are. Do I see a theme? I, I think there are changing themes because, of course, our culture changes and the demands of work changes. So there are some themes that change over time. I think currently people are very focused or talk quite a lot about the imposter syndrome, for example. Narcissism gets quite a lot of attention, thanks to Trump, but... Um, People are quite interested in that uh, personality type. But I think both of those themes, and perhaps we'll have time to discuss them later, but both of those themes become very, very misunderstood, I believe. But let's, but let's dive in specifically to imposter syndrome, because I think at the very least, we hear a lot more about it. Now, whether that is because we've just become more conscious of it or because it's risings. So Firstly, do, do people come to you because they feel that they've got imposter syndrome? H- how do you encounter it? Well, I don't think people would come and say specifically, I suffer the imposter syndrome. What they do say is they feel inadequate. They feel out of their depth. You know, they they fear that somehow they'll be exposed, they'll be found out, they'll be criticized, and their minds go down some extreme rabbit hole where they are either fired or gotten rid of somehow. So, you know, people experience it differently. Um, but I think some of the problems people come with are, are, are quite complex. But if you'd like to start with the imposter syndrome, first of all, what I'd like to say about it is, is people use that phrase, oh, everyone has the imposter syndrome. That's what I hear these days. Everybody has it. I have it. Everyone has it. And while it's true, everyone feels insecurities from time to time, because after all, we're all human and we all have our insecurities. And we also feel feelings of inadequacy. And we, we, we also might discuss why that might be more prominent in our current work culture. But the reality is, is that the imposter syndrome runs along a lot, quite a long continuum. And in some regards, in its more milder form, not only is it not harmful. In fact, it can be quite helpful, you know, and in, in it's a more milder form, really what it is. How so? Well, in its more milder form, it's self-doubts, really. We doubt ourselves. Do I know this well enough? Well, it, it is important to question your own competence. Is there something you need to learn? Is there something you need to grow and develop? Do you, do you need to find a mentor, uh, go, go on a course? So recognizing our blind spots acknowledging our weaknesses, knowing what we need to do to grow and develop can actually help us. And there are more ways that the imposter syndrome can be helpful. More people who have come to me have eventually come to recognize that these feelings of inadequacy, in fact, is what driven them. Because they fear criticism or they fear being seen to be inadequate, that's actually what drives people to work hard. That's actually what drives their ambition. Most people who excel, actually, or quite a lot of people, what's behind it is a real fear that they might be exposed. So what do they do? They overcompensate. They work harder. They prepare themselves better. And all of that makes them more equipped in the workplace. So in many regards, the imposter syndrome is not so much a hindrance. It 
can, in fact, be quite helpful. Just quickly, what would cause the imposter syndrome? So, so is this something in someone's childhood that has exposed them or has, has made them feel like they were unprepared? Do, the, do these things have childhood origins? The extreme manifestations of them do. The milder an- manifestations, I would say, that's just what it means to be human. We all have insecurities. Who doesn't? In fact, if somebody didn't have insecurities, we wouldn't like them so much. They've come across as a know-it-all. They'd be quite irritating to people. So, in fact, at the milder end, I'd say it's just what it means to be human. At a more extreme end, Mm. I'd say the origins of it, yes, oftentimes you can locate the origins in early childhood. Severe neglect by a parent or severe criticism. So the origins could be located in the family, perhaps in one's peer group. If one has been bullied quite badly in childhood, you know, they they might fear that they have to present themselves as perfect so as not to be harmed. While it can just be natural and human, at the more extreme end, I think, yes, the origins can be located early in life. Of all the things, probably, if someone did find themselves um, feeling like they were suffering from imposter syndrome, it doesn't sound like it's necessarily disastrous, but I guess they might to some extent hold themselves up to an impossible standard. Is that one of the challenges? Well, I'll come on to the challenges now. <laughs> so if we, let's say, move into, let's say, a more moderate place, you know, there are some challenges. You know, sometimes people who suffer with this, you know, they they um, need quite a lot of reassurance and validation and all that kind of That can be kind of irritating to colleagues to have somebody in the team who's constantly seeking reassurance can be irritating and people can sometimes back away or back off. Now, it only becomes a problem, the imposter syndrome, when it starts to influence people's behavior and their decisions. So, for example, if your feelings of inadequacy means that you, let's say, refuse a promotion or you're reluctant to make a decision because you don't trust your intuition. And so you're fearful of things going badly wrong and you being blamed. In the more extreme end, yes, it has severe consequences in the workplace. And so it's important to know and understand exactly where along the lines, where are you along this long continuum. But if you're finding that you're not taking risks where you should be, where you're reluctant to make decisions, where you're where you inhibit expressing your ideas, for example, all of those can contribute to uh, the workplace. And that's quite important. And can I just say one more thing when we talk about the kind of extreme problems of idealization. The the other thing people oftentimes get wrong is they think, well, if I just get this promotion, if I land this position, I'll feel much better. But in fact, what's more often the case is as people climb the career ladder, what it does is they've got added responsibilities. They've got more burdens. They have more decisions to be made, the more possibility of things going wrong and then being exposed, basically more to be anxious about. So there's every reason to think that as people climb the career ladder, they don't move away from the syndrome, but it actually becomes worse. Yeah, it's intriguing, isn't it? Because the, the whole idea of career and life progression is really a construct of the last 30 or 40 years. So, so you, you might say that we've engineered some sort of angst inside us that makes us feel like unless we're making continual progress, we're failing. 
and that wasn't there before. So it's just, it's intriguing why we never saw the expression of that 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It may have been more hidden. I think we're much more open in our language. But I think what's added to that as well is that is the, it's a very insecure work culture. People are put into new roles very, very quickly. And people assume that they have to do the job as soon as they step into it, rather than appreciating that it's a new role. You know, for example, a lot of managers are taken out of their areas of expertise. They're good at their job. They're good at their expertise. And that's why they've now become managers or even leaders. But of course, once you move to that position, what's required is not your area of expertise. It's something entirely different it becomes about managing people. It, it's about being good at interpersonal skills, quite a lot of it. And so suddenly they're out of their comfort zone. They're in a completely new area. And of course, it's very realistic that they'll think, oh my God, I'm going to be caught. I'm going to be found out. Somebody's going to see that. I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, it's kind of a normal reaction. What I would say is, it's normal and it's not an issue and it's not a problem. You're responding normally to being put in a new role. However, if you fail to kind of adjust to the new role over a period of time, many, many weeks or months really, then you should worry. Then you have a serious problem. So in other words, in starting a new role, it's perfectly healthy. It's normal. Everybody does it. But if you don't overcome it over time, then you better examine yourself more deeply and try to understand why you can't get get over it. That is so fascinating. So to some extent, it's a consequence of this sort of insecure, ever-changing version of work that we've created now, that it's almost like a, a, an unintended byproduct. The way you've just described that progression that people might go on and the, the advancement they might have sort of brings me on to another question I've got really, which is about these people that we encounter who are obsessed with being people pleasers. They're obsessed with being liked. And we encounter this most definitely in managers. A lot of managers don't want to be the person who appears to have, um, you know, told someone off or said something. I, I heard a conversation from someone recently and a manager that they used to have a couple of years ago um, was having a conversation with them. And this manager, now that he's no longer their manager, he he spoke candidly of what he thought of this woman and her style. And it just struck me as extraordinary that in the whole time he'd managed her, he'd never told her this direct feedback. And now that it wasn't down to him to manage her, suddenly he's delivering some truth to her that probably could have been really helpful. And it just struck me that, wow, this guy is obsessed with being liked. And we do witness this, right? We do witness these people pleasers. So firstly, where do you observe them? And, and talk me through the, the causes and the consequences of them. Right. Okay. Well, there are um, people pleasers and there are, and then there are compulsive people pleasers. <laughs> so, um, you know, in, in many companies, it's, it's, it's not a problem. If they're the employees, let's say every company or every business could use a sort of employees that are really just good team players that avoid conflict, that tread carefully, that are quite supportive to their colleagues. You know, they're loyal, they're reliable. You know, they're the bread and butter of many companies, these people pleasers. The problem is these people, their and focus or their antennae is much more focused on other people rather than 
themselves. In other words, they're more tuned into other people's needs than they are their own, their own. So while they're very good at responding to people's needs and the companies itself, where the business might miss out is that with their unique talents or opinions or ideas, they tend not to have many, to be honest. They're so nervous about how they might appear or how they might be seen or so nervous about being disliked that they dare not voice their opinion. They dare not come up with an idea. So that's kind of an extreme end. But I think what you're referring to, if I'm right, is a sort of manager who just fears conflict above all else. Mm. They want Mm. to be liked above all else. They don't want to be seen as a bad person. And there's no getting around it. If you're a manager and you're a leader, part of the job requires that you sometimes make harsh decisions and tell harsh truths. There's no way around it. So if you're a manager and a leader and you're uncomfortable with that, that's quite a serious problem. I'd say that's the biggest problem that new managers face. It's oftentimes the case that people are promoted again because they're expertise. Nobody's promoted because they're great at giving bad news. (laughs) No one. And yet that's a requirement for being a leader and being a manager. So oftentimes it's terrifying. It's okay, you have somebody who's, let's say, climbed the career ladder quite easily. Maybe they did well at university. Maybe they've always done well at their work. So they've continued to be promoted to climb and get higher and higher. And suddenly they're in the position where they have to bring bad news from time to time or make harsh decisions. And suddenly they're seen as the bad guy and they don't want to be seen as the bad guy. And that's, I think, when their vulnerabilities really come to the surface. They don't want to be seen as the bad guy. So they smooth over bad news They avoid it at all costs. They bring in consultants and coaches to try to resolve an issue. They're too anxious to resolve themselves. They have all sorts of approaches, anything in order to avoid being disliked. What's behind it? I think you asked. I think behind it is a fear if they were left to feel bad, you know, it may give rise to repressed feelings that they've held quite tightly. You know, they've been able to get away with a lot in their career trajectory. And suddenly they're in a position where their vulnerabilities are dis- exposed and they can't defend their, that character quite so well. It is, it, is, it is a real, real problem for leaders. And again, if they can't seem to address it themselves, it, it is good to try to talk to somebody other somebody like myself or a coach with with good psychological training who could really dig deep and and try to find out what is it that's so terrifying that you can't give this simple bit of news that's really crucial for the business. Keep in mind that this has all sorts of implications for a business. You know, I I was speaking, I had a man, for example, he's a CEO for consultancy and he just could not give his clients harsh truths. He could not give them bad news. But of course, that's what his clients are paying him for, the truth. But he was terrified of telling them the truth. He just wanted to please them and tell them what he imagined they wanted to hear. The whole thing was a disaster. And the company was at risk of losing clients. He was at risk of losing his job. 
it was a real problem. But what would you do if you've got a boss who's a people pleaser? And so your boss is telling you good news. Is there any way out of that? Or you just have to sort of factor it in. You have to presume that you're not being delivered the the candid truth. Well, I think most people like to hear good news. So nobody's ever come up to me and said, my problem is my boss is just telling me nice things. Right. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't think it is. But what happens over time is that serious problems aren't addressed. Things get ignored. What happens to a leader and a manager is uh, they they lose respect. People don't respect them because if you're seen not to deal with problems, uh, one of the things is you lose respect. Another thing is problems are sidestepped or ignored. And the other problem is everybody in the business sees that you're not handling stuff and then they start to get anxious. So everybody starts to worry, oh my God, I'm working in a company where nothing's addressed and... And that's very worrying. That creates a very unsafe culture. Let me ask you this. It, it really strikes me that, you know, you, you answered one of the questions along the way, saying that pe- probably people are more willing to express their feelings there and their emotions than they were 30 years ago. But, and, you know, a lot of the issues you, you really articulate are about either repressed feelings or repressed emotions or people being unable to express how they feel. And we've just had 18 months where people's principal interactions with each other is through screens. Now, whether by the nature of these things or whether by our own heuristics where we're less comfortable in being candid through a screen than we are face to face, people might have felt over the last 12 months that they've been less able to express some things that they might have been willing to express face-to-face over a cup of tea with someone. Have you witnessed any of that? Is that a trend or is it, have, have we probably got a lot of bottled up emotions from the last 18 months? What would you as, a, as someone trained in this practice presume would be going on now? Well, I don't think that's new. I mean, people do repress their feelings in the workplace. And actually, it's a good thing they do. You know, yeah. we don't want people <laughs> expressing all of their feelings. Well, you know, nothing would get done. You know, it's not, a, you know, it's not a place for that, really. I mean, there has to be some room for expression of feelings, but, you know, it all has to be a bit contained, really. Well, what has happened? But let's see the cost of that, because I, I think the, the biggest thing is that, you know, culture now tends to protect people from harm. And, and so there, there is an idea that people uh, can't be attacked in the workplace, for example, um, can't be made to feel bad or upset. And of course, all of this protects individuals in the workplace. You don't want people at risk of harassment or racial attacks or sexual abuse, certainly not. So that sort of protection is absolutely essential. So people have become very, very cautious in their language and they hold back quite a lot of feelings as a result that's not a bad thing it makes work more safe but we also have to keep in mind that people are holding these feelings inside themselves you know these feelings of frustration maybe feelings of unfairness hostility maybe envy jealousy sometimes hatred so people are harboring these very strong feelings that aren't getting expressed So the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, these feelings don't disappear only because they're not allowed to be expressed. We have to think, well, where are those 
feelings held. And I, I think it's quite interesting to try to think where they go because oftentimes they're directed in sort of passive-aggressive type behavior. So this is, for example, where malicious gossip, that's how malicious gossip is spread, or people maybe missing meetings, maybe withholding information, perhaps that sort of envious attacks, if you see, just because there's, we don't allow strong feelings in the workplace, it doesn't mean they don't exist. The question is, how and where do they exist? So they can either be expressed externally, as I've mentioned, through those sorts of kind of manipulative behaviors. And then the other option is that they become internalized. So people start to turn those bad feelings in on themselves. And I think that's what plays a part in the currently the kind of extent of mental health problems in the workplace, depression, anxiety. Really, that's intriguing. What So just because people are unable to express the way they're feeling, they repress that and it's manifested as mental health conditions. It can be if it's a sort of individual who isn't able to tolerate or cope with those feelings. You know, we hope that people come to work. And what we hope is that people have the emotional maturity to deal with workplace interactions because inevitably we'll get pissed off and irritated mm. and frustrated and annoyed and envious. I mean, all these feelings are perfectly human, but we hope that people have the maturity to kind of tolerate and cope and deal with those strong feelings. But not everyone does. And, you know, so those people, for those individuals, those feelings can manifest either internally, as I've suggested, or perhaps externally through that kind of passive aggressive behavior. You gave us a tantalizing glimpse of, of talking about narcissism and how that would present itself. And you, you mentioned the former president. So how would we observe narcissism? I think it's one of those phrases that we often throw around, especially if we're in an argument about someone or talking about uh, someone who's not responding on a WhatsApp group or, you know, we, we, we often label people as narcissistic. But give us the full details. What is a narcissist and where would we see it in our work? Gosh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think people get it so wrong. You know, they oftentimes these days it's so popular to throw around that phrase. So if we see somebody who's a bit of a know-it-all all, we think, oh, what a narcissist. Or even if somebody's ambitious, we think, we say, oh God, he's such a narcissist, as if being self-interested is a bad thing, you see. So it's quite a derogatory phrase. And so uh, people use it, you know, everywhere. And I, I think it's become popularized since Trump, by the way, because now it's, it's just suddenly everybody's a narcissist or everybody but you mm. is a narcissist. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it that way. And people wrongly think that narcissism is like something somebody catches, like somebody is a narcissist or not a narcissist, um, as if it's contagious or something like that. All that's completely wrong. You know, narcissism is a trait that we all have. Everybody has a degree of narcissism. In fact, without a healthy or moderate degree of narcissism, we wouldn't be able to muster the energy we have to drive our ambitions we wouldn't have the self-belief to put ourselves forward. In other words, anybody who has any success will have to have an element of self-belief. And that's what narcissism is. In its more milder forms, again, understanding that this is a continuum and not a I have it or I don't have it character trait. So again, in its milder forms, everyone needs to appreciate that everybody has a degree in narcissism. People who don't really suffer with a lack of self-belief 
and and they can't get very far indeed. Now, again, there is a opposite extreme because on its more extreme end, well, let me stick with the moderate end and let me say some things about why it's a good thing. <laughs> you know, if, if we look at narcissistic leaders or leaders we refer to as narcissism, you know, they also are oftentimes very intelligent and quite charismatic. Now, these are people who are very good at inspiring their teams and getting people behind them. People want to work for them. People think, gosh, being close to this person, this person looks great. Just by association, I can be great too. So they do get people behind them. So generally, it's no bad thing. The other thing is, there are extreme narcissists, but there are a lot fewer than people imagine. Actually, when we talk about the other extreme, where narcissism can be pathological, where what we refer to as malignant narcissism, as opposed to productive or healthy narcissism, then we get on the extreme end. So then we have to think, well, what then differentiates a more milder or productive narcissist from, let's say, a pathological or malignant narcissist? I guess that's your question. And when we get to the most extreme way, what really identifies a more malignant narcissist is their lack of empathy. They really don't care about anybody but themselves. If you have any ideas, they're only useful if it's to their interest. It really is about their agenda and not yours. Uh, and that I think that's the strongest one. And these people also have an extreme sense of entitlement. They think they're entitled to anything. Tell me this, because some of the ways you described it before is that the classic charismatic leader would be on the narcissistic scale. And what you're saying there is that, you know, they might be captivating, they might be uh, sort of an engaging person. But mm. I guess what you're saying is that we need to recognize where that person's self-actualization, their, their, their motivation to achieve something for themselves actually bridges into a disregard for others. Because if it is a scale, if it is a continuum, and probably some of the people who represent compelling leaders do have some of this characteristic, then, then I guess the job is for us to work out when this person lacks empathy as well as being this narcissistic character. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I tell you, if, if you're thinking, is my boss a narcissist or not? I think one of the things to find out is, is, is that are they open to hearing your views? Are they interested in you? You know, where is their interest? Is it entirely self-interested or are they interested in other people? Um, the other thing is the extreme or malignant narcissist. They're quite fragile personalities, by the way. And, and so their narcissism is, is, we can understand, as a kind of a defense against their own feelings of fragility. So they're very, very vulnerable people. That sometimes, sometimes is useful to know because, you know, you might find a bit of compassion for them as well because although they come across as, as, as a know-it-all, they're, it, it oftentimes deflects from their internal and deep fragility. But well, that's the conundrum with Trump. It seems that, you know, he's... Essential need to insert himself for getting the credit for everything seems mm. to be actually such a void at the center of his personality that, like, this is the most he was the most powerful man in the world. He needed to demonstrate nothing, but watching him shove aside leaders of lesser states to get to the front or demand that he take the credit for everything just seemed to be like this remarkable demonstration 
that he appeared to have no self-worth rather than someone who is assured that he is responsible for all good in society. It just, it really struck me that this was a man who was desperately trying to compensate for something that was wrong. You're completely right. He is desperately trying to compensate for, you know, deep feelings of worthlessness, you know, perhaps I think more deeply feelings of shame. Yeah. And, and, desperately trying to overcompensate for his feelings of inadequacy. Um, and it, it becomes quite obvious with Trump, and he's really exposed his narcissism for the world, for all of us to investigate and comment on. But it might be a bit more difficult to identify it in our bosses. Mm. Um, and uh, the reason it's more, it's more difficult to identify narcissism in people who are close to us because we might be compelled to be close to them. We might want to please them. You know, we might get drawn into their charisma and their excitement, what they can do and what they can do for us. And we might be desperate for their attention. You know, sometimes these narcissists on the extreme end, these, let's call them not very good, bad narcissist bosses, for lack of a better word. But they're also very, very good at kind of manipulating people. In other words, getting people to believe that uh, it can be better for them, that they can improve, they, they can make things better for them. But actually, they're completely self-interested. But nonetheless, it can be a carrot for some employees. So they're desperate to please their narcissistic boss. They love, the, some people love, some dependent personalities love the idea of working for somebody who's so intelligent and charismatic and seems to have all the answers and seems to be a know-it-all. Some people get drawn into that web and that then gets very complicated. The, the reason why I find this so intriguing, you know, the, the, there's definitely a whole group of society who are people watchers and love sort of dissecting the world around them and trying to interpret the the reasons why certain things played out. And so you've written this book, which is called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life. And is that because, is that title because you think our relationship with our work has become the defining part of our lives now. Talk me through the title. The Man Who Has Took His Job for His Life. I, th I think it re reflects many things. On one level, it reflects the fact that people are openly invested in their works, maybe to the neglect of other parts of their lives. There's a lot of reasons for that. People are spending a lot more time at work and their mental attention is focused at work, um, sometimes much more so than in their own families or in their closest relationships. It's work on their minds more than anything else. And this is also a response to having to work in a much more competitive job market. People are more insecure, you know, with the new culture, you know, the less security. So there's a lot of reasons for that. But the implications for that then is that people tend to act out, if you like, uh, their in internal life, their unconscious motivations, more in the workplace, I see, than even in their own families. Workplace becomes a kind of a breeding ground or a theater for everybody bringing in their kind of internal world or their unconscious motivations into the workplace. And I think that's what makes office politics such a minefield. Well, what, what I hope with this book is it'll um, prompt people to think more 
uh, about themselves, to delve a bit more deeply in their early experience, in their lives and in themselves, to try to make the connections between their early lives, their close relationships, and their working lives, and to come up with new insights. Now, there's no absolute truths, of course. This is an ongoing process. This is just life, really. So I hope that it raises questions in people. I hope it makes people think and reflect and be curious. I hope it makes people more compassionate. I hope it helps people to be easier on themselves, less harsh on themselves, and more understanding of their colleagues as well, because everybody's bringing these insecurities and troubled lives to work. And we need to appreciate that. Thank you, Naomi. A brilliant discussion. Like I say, I didn't really sort of go heavily on it, but Naomi's book, The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life, How to Thrive, How to Thrive at Work by Leaving Your Emotional Baggage Behind is available now. I loved that. I love that discussion. Next week, I'm going to have, I'm chatting to a lot of people who have in some way got a job description of remote manager or head of remote at their company. I'm intrigued about how some organizations tackling the shift to remote or hybrid working in a different way. There's still time to contribute to that. If you're hearing this uh, pretty soon after it went out, by all means, hit me up on LinkedIn or on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.